With so much change happening at such a fast pace, the digital transformation process can feel like it must be extremely far along and perhaps near completion. Companies have been moving as speedily as possible to adopt their business to the digital realm and in many cases, to create new digital territories altogether. If digital transformation was a baseball game, it could be easy to assume that the transition is in the latter innings. Rich Nanda, the US Monitor Deloitte practice leader at Deloitte Consulting, offers a contrary perspective. We're seeing seismic shifts now and for the next decade, maybe two, in terms of value chains getting shook up, the way companies make money and engage their customers changing fundamentally. And that's all because of the digitization of our economy and we're in the first inning. We've got a long way to go before we see all of the implications of a more digital economy. If it's true that the digital transformation process is still at a fairly nascent stage, then companies are only scratching the surface digitally. There will be markets in the future that seem unimaginable today. Relationships with customers will look completely different too. This means that the potential for improvement to people's lives or making life more challenging due to unexpected consequences is beyond current comprehension. It also means that opportunities for business growth or difficulties will be much more pronounced. Adaptable leaders and helpful guidance will be more imperative than ever. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Rich explains how consultants during this transformative period must provide expertise, yet also a broad vision. He also chats about his book, The Transformation Myth, leading your organization into an uncertain future that he co-wrote along with Gerald Kane, Anwin Phillips, and Jonathan Kapolsky. The book details how certain styles of leadership can be helpful during times of intense disruption and transformation. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. His name is Rich Nanda. He is the U.S. Monitor Deloitte Practice Leader. Rich, welcome to the show. Albert, thanks for having me. All right. That was a mouthful of what I just said. So I think we all know that Deloitte is just a massive company with massive lines of business. Uh, sometimes when people think about Deloitte, they can't even begin to put their finger on what it is that they do, but we got to try. So U.S. Monitor Deloitte, practice leader. What does that mean? What exactly do you do at Deloitte? And what does your organization do? Yeah. So I'm, I'm lucky to uh, lead the, the strategy business within um, Deloitte's U.S. practice. So we're a global professional services firm. Um, the largest part of our business is uh, consulting. And so that spans strategy, implementation, lots of technology work. But we also, of course, have uh, an accounting a tax and a risk advisory business as well. Uh, and we're all over the world. Um, so while I'm the U.S. practice leader in strategy, I work with my colleagues, you know, in every corner of the world um, as a matter of routine. Yeah. And look, our breath, the fact that we can serve a client's needs, um, regardless of how they're changing and transforming their business is our strength. So we're really proud of the fact that, you know, that, that we have scale and breath in our services. That's awesome. And then specifically for your, like laser in, if you could for us, what exact, what is it that your division or your group works on? Yeah. So we have um, a unique combination of uh, classic 
corporate and competitive strategy work. So think about, you know, companies looking to understand, you know, what markets should they play in? How do they fortify their competitive advantages and, and how they play in those markets? We also have a uh, transformation practice. So business model transformation, capability transformation. So clients figure out how they want to change. We help them then design and implement those changes. And we also have a tech strategy practice. So focused on how technology leaders adopt new technologies into the organization, how they work with their business colleagues to, to make sure that um, all of that tech spend um, is put towards growth and competing differently. So it's a pretty you know, unique combination of strategy businesses. And we love the fact that you know, not only are we the big thinkers that help our clients wrestle with, with complicated problems, but we're there with them on the journey as they implement those. Yeah. So give us an idea of some of the big, I guess, questions that are being asked of your organization right now, because the one thing that we know that's a lot different from Deloitte and some of our other guests that have been on the show, some of our guests, when they talk about strategy, usually some type of like short-term strategy, maybe it can be, hey, how do I better monitor analytics going through my cloud services? How do I better handle disaster backup and mitigation? How do I handle short-term security, things like that? You guys, and the way I described Deloitte, the way you guys work to people that ask me questions about it is that you guys are trying to like open up, in my opinion, new lines of business or transform completely the way something is done. I noticed that you have a background in motor vehicles. And I, I was thinking like, you know, just like all these internal combustion engine companies are now thinking, hey, how do we open up our lines of EVs, which is going to be drastically different from what they've ever done before. So given that, you know, that type of huge wholesale business foundational, we're going to go into new categories type thinking, I think you guys work on, what are some of the major questions or problem sets that are getting asked of Deloitte today? Yeah, Albert. Um, so I, look, I think the nature of client questions is getting, you know, they're getting bigger and more existential. <laughs> um, which is exciting for us as consultants, you know, it can be intimidating for, for some of our clients, but I think executives that are embracing the moment, you know, those, those executives are, are likely to be better off than those that are, you know, trying to make their problems and opportunities smaller in nature. You know, you talked about automotive, look, the, the things that Mary Barra and GM are doing to kind of declare that they're a software company, that electrification of, of vehicles is going to happen and they're going to they're drive that change. And as they become electrified, as vehicles become software platforms, they're going to make money you know, in many other ways besides just selling the cars that get us from point A to point B. There's all kinds of services right, that they believe they can layer onto a, a software-enabled vehicle. And I think that future is coming. Um, so in every you know, big player and in every industry vertical has a version of that question that's ahead of them. And so while you know, strategy and kind of how companies compete has always been a fun place to play, I would say we're seeing you know, seismic shifts now and for the next decade, maybe two, in terms of you know, value chains getting shook up, the way companies make money and engage their customers changing fundamentally. Uh, and that's all because of the digitization of our economy. And we're, we're in the first inning. We've got a long way to go before, you know, we see all of the implications of a more digital economy. You know, 
the way you describe that, I can see how a lot of people that are listening to IT Visionaries might be get super excited by that. I always joke that I'm like not the typical audience member of IT Visionaries because I don't like paying for subscription services. I don't like recurring billing of anything. And one of the internet handles I follow on Twitter is called the Internet of where it's like every <laughs> device or product is going to have a SaaS component to it or you won't, nothing will work. So that scares me a little bit. But how do you and your team think about these questions and demands on your team? Because like you said, the breadth of customer at the is quite large from automotive to snacks, you know, mon- I know, you know, <laughs> food manufacturers. It's weird to think about all these things that are traditionally physical. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, can a mug company go digital? I don't know. Can a snack company go digital? Like, you know, it begs that question. There's a lot of things in the past that have been you know, we, that didn't have a digital layer. And you're saying everyone wants to figure out a digital layer to their business. How do you guys approach thinking how these markets and categories and uh, opportunities will open? Well, look, first, you got to start with the end customer, right? And so, you know, we and, and you know, many others, you, you know, the, the design thinking wave that's here that starts with end users and customers is very powerful, right? And so, Anybody, any company, right, that's looking to grow, make money differently, it starts with, well, who's going to buy products and services from us? What are their needs? How do we shape those needs, you know, into the future? And so, you know, having a very customer-centric starting point is, is essential. But then from then, you know, that point, and this is what makes this day and age so exciting, is there's way more possibilities about how you could access service and retain those customers than ever before. And that's because we as consumers in a digital world, our habits are not what they were five to 10 years ago. You know, you talked about subscription services, but those are thriving because, you know, we're watching Squid Game and telling all our friends how great <laughs> it is, right? And and more yeah. people are subscribing to Netflix and we're not watching broadcast television. And so at the end of the day, all these businesses are born out of new um, customer behaviors. And so it starts with, starts with really deep appreciation of the customer. And you have to have sector specificity around that. Like you can't, you know, we need strategy practitioners that deeply understand the dynamics in a, in a given sector because serving a patient in healthcare and life sciences is very different than serving, you know, somebody who wants, uh, you know, the next show to binge watch. But having said that, what's really interesting is, you know, not only is sector depth important, but there's so much outside in disruption now, particularly from from the tech companies that you can't be blinded by what you know in your sector. And so it's this really interesting combination of sector expertise with some outside in thinking about kind of the trends and likely disruption that's coming from outside of a given, you know, known value chain. And for our audience, can you share your uh, sector? Ex- what would you consider your sector expertise? So I grew up in automotive, but that was way back when, um, 20 years ago, I started my career at GM, which isn't why I plug Mary and GM. I really <laughs> like their, I really like what they're doing. But I've, as a consultant, I focused on consumer products. So I work with um, CPG manufacturers and retailers. So what are some of the things that you have, because you said, you know, you got to start with customer because every strategy is going to be based upon taking, I guess, advantage or optimizing how a customer is going to want to behave in the next, let's say, decade or two decades or something like that. What are some of the observations you and your team have made that are, that are fundamentally shifting? Because, you know, when you're going through it, 
as in living it, you know, a lot of people probably can't pinpoint that their behavior is starting to change or their attitudes towards something has changed. It's usually like, okay, a decade has passed and you look back like, I can't believe I used to do things like that, right? And, and, and it happens quickly. The the jump, or I guess it's the same as uh, how people described your children growing up, right? The days are long, the years are short. You look back on the years like, oh, how did that happen so fast? What are some things that you're starting to, you and your team are starting to notice about consumers when it comes to CPGs? How are we fundamentally changing or how are we subtly changing that you think is going to be a fundamental shift in like the next decade? Well, I think what, what's happened is there's aspects of our life that, you know, the bar is now super high, right? We want things on demand. We want them just for us, you know, and on the one hand, we don't like giving up our, you know, our, our privacy and our information. But what we've noticed is we like when you know the platform companies we buy from and we connect with our family on, you know, give us content um, that's just for us, right? And so I think the the bar is now set. And when you get in your car in the future, you know you're gonna it, you're gonna want it to be intelligent about you know where you are in the day and where you might be going and and what your needs are. I think a really interesting parallel to this is how. Healthcare needs to be um, transformed and, and delivered, and we as patients kind of suffer through a pretty <laughs> set of experiences. Yeah, and you know a lot of good is going to come from healthcare getting smarter about you know where our bodies are and where our minds are, what we need, getting those you know medical services in in a much more seamless and frictionless way. We're going to be healthier for it. And, and all these healthcare problems we have, that's how they're going to be transformed. We're going to become a healthier nation at a, at a lower cost as data, AI, right, get adopted into healthcare just as they have in you know, entertainment and other parts of the economy. Where do you see like some of the biggest near-term shifts happening in that regard? Because like as uh, I've said on multiple episodes in the past, my background is I went to the University of Emory for, or Emory University, as they like to call it, very snooty school. Don't go there. Um, <laughs> got a degree in behavior science and health, uh, public health. And so I've always been fascinated by disease prevention. Of course, there's not as much money in prevention as there is in uh, taking care of the illness. And one of the things that you just mentioned is something that I've been tracking quite closely with potential smart devices, whether it's toilets, whether it's monitors, watches, things that are able to basically tell you that, hey, you're heading down the path of illness well before illness. What are some of the things you see in the near-term future that are going to become available? Because I know you guys are working on some pretty amazing projects probably that like would get you know, our audience psyched up. Yeah. Look, I think you know, what you're alluding to, their wearables, smart homes, like all of that's coming and will be an essential data signal right into our health and well-being. The immediate to do, and, and look, that innovation is going to happen. I'm wearing a whoop strap here that I've you know, <laughs> had on my wrist for over a year now without taking off. That's going to keep happening. But the immediate thing that healthcare players have to do is they're sitting on a trove of data already, right? And in most cases, that data you know, doesn't talk to itself within an organization, let alone across organizations. And so there's a big foundational cleanup that's required, which is just getting all of that data smarter, more intelligent, more um, interoperable is, is the word to just mm-hmm. say that can it talk to each other. A really interesting example um, from some research we did is, is Anthem. And um, they have a chief digital officer, Rajiv Ranaki, 
And a few years ago, you know, Rajiv saw that look, we're not just going to be a, a provider of information that helps doctors and health systems um, connect with patients in a transactional way and get their bills paid. But if we actually kind of digitize all this data that we have, we automate it, we put some AI against it, we're going to have intelligence about how this system works and what patients need and how doctors can help those patients more. And, and sure enough, during the pandemic, there was this big issue where people that needed care weren't going to hospitals because they were worried about the virus, mm. right? And in the spring of last year, even into the summer of last year. I think we were almost recommended not to go too, because every day the news would report, hey, overcapacity, too many right. patients. Like it was it was probably discouraging if you had um if you had an ailment or illness, you're like, hey, I don't know if I want to be there. Right. Exactly right. It was, you know, people they didn't have great information and they were they were afraid. But what Anthem was able to do is they were able to send um, nudges to patients to say, hey, you're overdue for this, this care. It's actually safe to go to this facility to go get it. Or there's tele telemedicine available. Please kind of consult your doctor over Zoom. And um, it was a huge success story in the, in the pandemic. And all, all the result of, you know, a few years ago, that organization understanding that, you know, there was a digital future in which they needed to get all of that data working for them a little bit more. It was, you know, it was this asset that was sitting on their books and they weren't doing anything with it. And under Rajiv's leadership, you know, they made a lot of progress and, and a real real world example during the pandemic of, you know, embracing that future and serving patients better for it. So you mentioned like there was a foundational problem that they had to unpack all this data, make it, as you suggested, more interoperable. And that was just to create something that we already have experienced in other tools, a nudge, right? Other tools already have nudge capabilities and, right. and we're, we're as a society very used to notifications. You know, in a way, notifications have completely transformed human behavior. It's one of those things that we talked about where it's like when you're living it, you don't recognize it. But now I think we've created a society that doesn't really function too well without it. Right. Like we, we as individuals without a cell phone alert, my wife, by the way, is one of those people that still uses a physical calendar. And like, so I never know what's going on. So she same. <laughs> I, my wife uses a paper and I can't get her to switch. And uh, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. She says like, oh, you forgot about, you know, my son's practice. I'm like, well, it's not my calendar. I don't see it. It's like, it is on the calendar. I'm like, come on. I'm not in front of that piece of paper. But, <laughs> but you know, like that's kind of like what we were talking about before, like over, over a short period of time, you don't really notice it's happening, but that has happened. You know, and that to me seems relatively obvious, but it's it's shocking kind of, I guess, the way systems were set up for the company that they couldn't make something obvious available until, like you said, Rajiv really took a look at it and said, well, no, no, we got to do this. Yeah. How many instances of that do you think there are? Like how much, how many companies, you know, it's hard to say, of course, you don't work with every single company, but how many companies would you say or industries that are like, that just need to move forward or that you would strongly encourage to move forward because- on one hand, the way you describe it, it's like, yeah, that's clearly obvious. But then on the other hand, like when I think about it, it's like, man, like why, why wasn't this available earlier? Nudging and notifications have been around since BlackBerry days. So that's early 2000s when we would get the alerts like, hey, something's happening. Right. Look, I, I think, like I said, we're in the first inning. And I think the, major, the vast majority of the business world is, you know, still um, yet to be fully digitized and is living is still living their best analog selves, right? <laughs> and so I, there's just going to be a golden era of change ahead. And 
Yeah. You can, I think 90%, right. Of companies still, right. Have to have to truly kind of embrace digital transformation Wow, to, to change themselves. And nudging is one example. Like you can go through every sector, you know, of the economy and companies out there and automation kind of intelligent nudging, like these things are still, they're just being adopted for the first time, let alone like universally and in ways that like truly move the needle. Yeah. It's crazy to think about it. I, I remember the first time I got in a, a vehicle with a tire air pressure sensor, it's like something so obvious, like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like I'd like to know that my air, my air pressure is low. And then it, but it did take, like you suggest, it took years before that technology was available. And I, I believe it's standard now, but I'm sure there's still manu- manufacturers that make it without it. Yeah. I don't, I can't think of like not having that. When you, you mentioned before digital transformation, and that's a word that's used a lot, right? And you just recently wrote a book on it. You are the author of The Transformational Myth, Leading Your Organization Through Uncertain Times. You wrote this book with a couple other authors, uh, a Gerald Kane. Uh, Win Phillips and Jonathan Kapolsky. Hopefully, I pronounced everybody's name wrong. I mean, correctly. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, I pronounced everyone's name correctly. Um, we took a look at a couple excerpts, and you call it. It's a good, catchy title: "The Transformation Myth." It looks like it just got released. What is the myth for our audience? What is the myth surrounding transformation that you guys hit on? Yeah. Thanks for um, letting me talk about the book a little bit. So the the myth is that transformation is this one and done project or event. And when in fact, you know, the, the best companies are continuously transforming themselves. Mm-hmm. And in a more uncertain world where you know change is continuous and frankly technological innovation is faster um, than it's ever been before, you know, you just have to expect that you're going to be continuously adapting to that environment, continuously making big changes to the company and that you know the steady state really isn't all that steady. And so that's the the premise of the book. We wrote it over the course of 2020 and we used the events of the pandemic and you know all the derivative disruptions from the pandemic to kind of study companies that were responding well and that weren't and uh, you know drew some lessons um, of that very acute disruption of the pandemic to say okay in a in a more disruptive world where companies are going to have chronic overlapping disruptions, what kind of leadership traits, organizational traits matter to help thrive in that, in that environment. And one of the things that you've done, and I want you to dive into this, this growth mindset among leaders, because we took a look at your, you and the team call it the, the phenomenon of fixed growth mindset and versus, um, I guess, continuous growth, right? And you have these charts, I'm taking a look at this and like charts, and it really does take an idea of looking out over decades. So what is the problem, I guess, with fixed? Yeah. Uh, give our audience an example, like the, the, this, this concept of a fixed mindset. Well, we draw a contrast between a, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And this isn't a new, a new kind of uh, business or academic uh, concept, but overlaying it onto managing disruption, seeing disruption as an opportunity versus a problem that has to be solved? Why, why does some companies see disruption as an opportunity versus others see it as um, you know, a threat? And it does come down to this, a leadership mindset that is more growth oriented. And so we have try and unpack what that growth mindset means to harnessing disruption. And 
leaders, you know, that that have a growth mindset, you know, they tend to be more willing to experiment. They tend to be more willing to partner with non-traditional players. They they tend to, you know, allow failure in the organization, knowing that you know all innovation is going to lead to you know some failures, and they permeate that kind of culturally, right? So they they don't just talk the talk, but they you know they back it up with you know how they how they act, how they reward people. Uh, and companies with the fixed mindset, you know, they tend to just say, okay, we got to optimize for a short-term horizon. We're going to set up our management structure, right, to to optimize against that short-term horizon. And then what tends to happen is those companies get left behind in this, you know, fast-moving, increasingly digital economy. But this this concept goes into all aspects of business, right? It doesn't just doesn't have to deal with digitization. It could be because like one of the things I saw recently is this really cool case study on like why is Chick Fil A makes so much more money than other QSRs, and it's like there's there's un it's like unrelenting focus. I guess it's some technology in there for sure, but like to serve the customer, right? Yeah, like they're, they're how they handle drive throughs I don't know if you've ever been through a Chick Chick Fil A drive through line, but it's substantially faster than than any 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 other restaurant. Is that kind of like where I guess the best leaders, the best companies, the fastest growing companies, are they, how are they doing? They're, there's basically, you mentioned earlier, like they're looking at the customer behavior. Is that what they're doing? Is like looking at every single customer, I guess, choke point or dissatisfaction arena and be like, hey, how do we solve that? And usually technology is part of the solution, not the whole solution, but it's a part of it. Yeah. Is that like kind of the mindset? Like they don't have, you don't have to fundamentally transform your whole business, but it's this constantly pulling up, like up leveling aspects of your business. Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, that's what totally well said, Albert. Look, at the end of the day, Chick-fil-A is going to make money by selling, you know, delicious chicken sandwiches. And yeah. the minute their chicken sandwiches aren't del- delicious anymore, they're they're in trouble, right? So, in that context, uh, their digital transformation is all about well, what are the all other elements of the customer experience? You talked about kind of speed and convenience. Yeah. And I guarantee there's a whole bunch of automation, you know, that has gone into them being able to do that better than others, whether that's automation of, you know, how their the restaurant works and keeping it smooth. It's automation of, you know, the uh, AV equipment and, you know, how they're seeing when a customer is coming through the drive through and being alerted, things like that. And so, you know, the fundamentals of that business um, delicious chicken isn't going to change, but you know, differentiating themselves, continuing to attract customers. There's absolutely um, an acknowledgement of a more digital world, consumer expectations, as we've described, and them having to adopt technology to meet that. And it's an important part of our, our what we tell clients, and which is, is also in the book, is it's never about the technology, right? But at the end of the day, we're in an increasingly technological world. And, you know, if you don't understand the implications of that technology and how it makes your business better or potentially better, then you'll, then you'll be left behind. So it's not about the technology, but technology is essential to how companies compete today. How do you think, or why do you think certain CEOs or leaders or companies seem more willing to take these risks, especially when given the capital requirements, right? So, you know, it's one thing for a lot of our clients, we're software-based companies. Is like, oh, you can sign a SaaS contract and you can try it out. But like a lot of things, like we just said with Chick-fil-A or other businesses, it requires investment in hardware. 
You have to invest in the machines. You have to invest capital, uh, human capital training. I think we always hear of like uh, the the bad stories on the news of like CEOs not willing to invest in people, but then there are the ones in this growth mindset that are constantly investing. I guess everywhere. What would you say? Like, what what is their reaction when it usually requires some type of capex on top of software? that they have to invest in? Are they just as willing to do it, the people with growth mindsets? Or is that like the distinguishing line between someone who's like, they say they're about growth, but actually you might not have a growth mindset because if you're not willing to invest in the the tools or the tooling to make your operation better, then you're really not there yet. You're you're more focused on maybe a short-term solution, like people thinking like, oh, just some software will help the whole problem. By the way, if this was easy, right? Every, oh, yeah. every CEO <laughs> would, would be doing it. So it's it's absolutely you know, tough to pull off. And for sure, it's going to stress a company's P&L and balance sheet on the investment, you know, required to, to make these significant, you know, changes in their business. Um, but the best companies, right, they're taking the long view. So they're understanding that, again, transformation is not a one and done. And we have to kind of create the capacity to invest in, in change over time. So how do we create room in our financials and in the P&L to do that. And you can't go from zero to 60 right away, right? So you got to start by starting and then build the kind of the financial affordability, the human capital affordability, the, the risk affordability, you know, into the, you know, the business operations over time. You know, the companies that are getting it wrong are the ones that will say, look, I have 12 months. This is what we can put into it. And then, you know, we have to be at that end state in 12 to 24 months or or whatever. And so, you know, that's a fixed mindset, right? That's seeing finish lines as destinations, you know, rather than as, you know, future building blocks. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the other thing we're starting to see is, and we've noticed just the research team and IT visionaries is this adjacent but different acquisition model that seems to be happening, like where companies are really thinking outside the box. Like I know, for example, uh, one of the major golf brands acquired Topgolf, which is like an entertainment complex. Like that's was unheard of, right? We saw Lululemon acquiring Mirror. Like when they do the acquisition, like, oh, I can see like, oh, exercise and clothes that fits. Golf and golf, that fits. But it's not in the same vertical. Usually they're like an adjacent vertical. Talk about that. Is that how a lot of the biggest companies are going to grow into new lines of business? Or do you think they're just going to acquire these lines of business and be like, hey, this is our new thing? Because when the Top Golf thing went down, I was surprised because I never heard of any of the golf brands acquiring. Like they're they're typically not in that space. They make equipment. They make equipment as like, oh, they would make stores. They would make a store. But here they are, you know, I believe Callaway acquiring Top Golf. Like it's those don't, I mean, Top golf's arguably not even golf. You know what I mean? Like you're just smashing. Yeah, right. I don't know if you've ever played. You're just smashing a ball in giant like pits, right? Yeah. These companies that are doing that to open new categories is that is that like their mindset? Like, hey, we're going to innovate so fast that we're actually going. We're just going outside of our lane. We're going. That's how we're going to do it. I, I see kind of two questions in there. One is like, will companies expand out of their traditional lane? You know, into new into new markets to grow and acquire customers. You know, in a different way. And the, the, the top golf uh, example is a really good one of that. Which is, you know, are we a more interesting company if we're serving the same or similar consumers? You know, in multiple aspects of their life. And 
every company is going to have a set of decisions or choices ahead of them about how broad you know they want their competitive arena to be. And several will conclude that actually moving into adjacencies makes sense um, because our, our competitive advantages travel well into those adjacencies. Some companies, are, and by the way, those are calculated bets and you know, they'll, they'll be right sometimes and they'll be wrong sometimes. But, but for sure, we're going to see an environment of companies broadening their, you know, their where to play choices, as we like to stay in the, in the strategy world. And then there's a build or buy decision, right? Do we yeah. build our way into that or do we just go the M&A route? And for sure, over the next handful of years, we're going to see a lot of M&A. Um, you know, balance sheets are healthy. There's a lot of capital out there to borrow. And M&A will be a very attractive way to access markets or capabilities to get into markets you know, that, that wasn't there before. And, and the last thing I'll say is a, is a, a more digital economy makes those adjacent spaces that much more interesting. So, you know, go, go back to the General Motors example. Yeah. A car that is software, they had OnStar 20 years ago, right? So <laughs> yeah. software in the car is not a new thing, but software in the car in a connected world. Now that's interesting because when, you know, when you're driving around and you want to buy something, you know, maybe GM is the next commerce platform, right? That uh, mm. is connecting people, or maybe they, you know, will get into insurance, you know, or maybe there'll be another version of Uber, you know, who knows, but software in a car in a connected world is a lot different than OnStar was 20 years ago. Yeah. It can become a content play. I can't tell you how many times I've driven with my son. He's like, oh, you know, we want to eat something. And it's like, it's, it's very difficult to know what's in front of you or what's in route right. without, you know, pulling up Google Maps and searching and <laughs> possibly killing yourself. So don't do that, everybody. If this new connected cars can give us this information, that'd be killer. Yeah. When I think of, when I think of um, when you, the way you describe, right, the digitization of everything, I'm like wildly fascinated by what companies are going to pick up adjacencies versus like inside their own vertical. I think right now that the conversation right now is PayPal is going to in talks to acquire Pinterest, which is something they've never done before. They've always acquired other financial companies, you know, they've acquired like Venmo, right? Makes total sense. That's money transacting, but to get a social media platform, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years as companies with, like you said, healthy balance sheets think to like, how do we broaden our markets? Super fascinating time and place. Rich, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries, sharing some of the things you think and also some of the things that your company's working on. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Rich, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. On your Twitter bio, it says that you occasionally whine. Is it, what does that mean? Uh, it means I love wine to the point of, you know, we got to have a, a bottle with, uh, you know, with, with a good meal. I like traveling to wine country. Oh. I like meeting the people that make, you know, the wines that I enjoy. And I probably buy and uh, collect a little too much wine, you know, than I need. But uh, it's a fun hobby. There you go. Well, give us a recommendation. What is a wine that you think is close to the top of your list that everyone should give a, give a try? Well, without a doubt, the best wine in the world is Burgundy. So that's Pinot and Chardonnay from from France. And I, uh, you know, an affordable option is Chablis. So beautiful white Burgundy, it's the best Chardonnay in the world. <laughs> Listen to that. 
I don't know anything about wine, but I will take your recognition because my wife is a wine drinker. There you go. <laughs> You've just written a book. For those who are thinking about writing their own book, whether it's fiction or non in your, your case happens to be research-based, so we'll go with nonfiction business book. Let me ask you a question. How long did the process take? I know you were with the team, but how long did that process take? Uh, we started writing in March of 2020. We submitted our manuscript right around this time last year, so end of end of October. So the research and the writing took you know, seven months or so. And then there's some. It's an academic book. We wrote with uh, some professors, so there's some academic peer reviews that happen um, that takes you know another couple of months. And then from there, it's a pretty extensive cycle of you know just nuts and bolts of publishing, um, you know, getting it, getting the page layouts right and the graphics right. And then there's a whole host of supply chain issues to get the books <laughs> primed and ready to go. And yeah, we launched in September, um, September 28th, the book launch. So all in all, it was a, you know, a year and a half from concept to books on shelves. Now this will tell us whether the process was painful or easy. Would you write another one? For sure. I'd write another one. It was a fun process. Having co-authors helps. You know, writing it during a pandemic when it didn't have anything to do on the weekends. <laughs> we were all at home and locked down. So, you know, plenty of time to focus on writing. But it was a great process. Always, you know, fun to see, you know, your your hard work in black and white. All right. So when you're not enjoying wine and when you're not writing books, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, I'm a sports junkie. Uh, I'm here in Chicago. Um, so I love to watch uh, my teams, the Cubs. Tough year. The Bears, they just got thumped by Brady yesterday. Tough year. Um, the Blackhawks are off to a rough start, but the Bulls are showing promise. We got a good, fun young team. Um, so hopefully they provide me some joy this year while the other teams are a little down. How long have you lived in Chicago? I was born born here. Um, so I've spent my life in uh, Chicago or the Chicago area. I did a stint in Michigan for undergrad and a stint in New York for grad school, but, but otherwise Chicago has been home. Listen, everyone, do not feel bad for Rich at all. He's lit. He, that means he grew up during the Bulls dynasty. He got to cheer for the hometown greatest player of all time. So let's not feel bad for Rich. The Blackhawks won three cups, <laughs> three cups in six years. So, I mean, come on, man. We can't feel bad for you. So a little down year is not a big deal. And, and we had the Cubs in 2016. So I, I, you're, you're right, Albert. There you go. Your, your Cubbies broke yeah. the They broke the curse. You got to live that. People have literally not <laughs> yeah. seen it in their lifetimes. And you got to see it in your lifetime. So I think that you, you've had a pretty good run of uh, being a sports fan. Uh, all right. I'll try, and, I'll try and keep a growth mindset and uh, look at the bright side of Chicago sports. <laughs> there it is. Rich, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of the things you're up to at Deloitte. And then I think we have to close with one more question. And this is this this will be a little bit aligned with our your work plus the lighting round. What is a product that you are or a company that you just think is just getting it right? Like you just love everything they're doing and you think the innovation is just killer. Now you named GM earlier, but so I want you to name something else. All right. So maybe near and dear to my heart, um, Peloton. So like many people uh, over the pandemic, I was... Um, the gym shut down and I kind of got into home fitness, uh, got my Peloton over the summer and I love the, the platform, the, the bike is excellent technology and, you know, works well, but they're doing an awesome job on, on their other content. Now they're getting into merchandise in a, in a pretty big way. Um, so I find Peloton to be a pretty fascinating company and one that, you know, I tend to spend uh, multiple hours per week immersed in. 
Were you a beach body person prior? No, I wasn't. I was not a beach body person. So I cannot find a single person yet. I'm this is my quest because I know beach body cares. Is why is Peloton's content and routines better than beach body? Because beach body was first. Right. You know, subscription exercise routines over the, you know, over the apps and stuff like that. And Peloton's just raced past them. It's it's pretty fascinating. So I've yet to meet that person that can quantify it, but I know Beachbody cares. They, they, they have to care. They care. Like, how is this company doing it? <laughs> I'll, be on, I'll be on the lookout, Albert. <laughs> Rich, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. It was a lot of fun having you. All right. I enjoyed being here. Thank you. 